All right, well, good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. How many of you are like me, thankful this is the last day in February? Right? I don't know about you. February has been the hardest month year after year for me uh, since Shelly died. And I don't know what it is about one calendar day, but it means a lot. Maybe it's my birthday month. I'm not telling you what day. Um, but I don't know what it is, but it's been a, a long week um, for a lot of us. Uh, I know a lot of you, Nate has been sharing, I've been meeting with a lot of you and a lot of uh, different strife, that's two words combined together, um, a lot of different strife and, and stress going on in your life, a lot of different things happening. Um, one of the things I want you to be aware of, there's a lot of things going on, but one of the things I want you to be aware of, uh, if you've been with us for a little while, there's an older gentleman who's been with us, I think, almost since I started here, uh, one of the people that God has used, uh, his name is John Powers. He actually had a stroke this week and is in the hospital and uh, is trying to recover uh, from his whole right side being um, paralyzed right now. He came and write his name and, and stuff. And so he'll be praying for John, um, and he's trying to get into a rehab place uh, this week, so you can be praying for him. But just stuff like that just keeps uh, coming up. And uh, for me, it was good to get back into Scripture, and it was good to be here this morning. And uh, so I pray that as we look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 18 to 21, that our hearts will be encouraged about Jesus calling his first disciples. Now, we've gone a little John Piper in Matthew chapter 4, and if you don't know what that means, it means this is like, we've spent like, I think like four or five sermons in the first three chapters of Matthew, and now we've done 34 in chapter 4. Uh, there's just a lot in chapter 4, and that doesn't bode well for the Sermon on the Mount in the 14 years it's going to take to do that, but um, just bear with us as we work through this, because there's a lot of unique, interesting, and necessary stuff in this chapter that sets the stage really for the rest of the book. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, we see that what Matthew records Immediately after the baptism, the temptation, and his initial proclamation in Zebulun and Naphtali <clears throat> is the calling of disciples. Now I want to ask this question. Why is this such an important event? Why does Matthew take the time to speak at length about him calling his first disciples? And as we read through here, we'll see it's not all of them. It doesn't just go pick 12 out, you know, he walks one day and is like, I want you, you, you. No, as he's doing his ministry, he's beginning to call more and more people to himself. And we'll see that he picks two sets of brothers today. And obviously... We think Jesus called disciples because when he leaves, he needs people to continue his mission in the world after he leaves, right? Yes. And that is definitely part of what Jesus is doing. But I think there's more going on here than just simply Jesus calling people and teaching them. I think there's a lot of applications to this passage regarding discipleship that we can make, that many people have made. But I think before we even jump to what it means to be a disciple, what it means to leave our nets immediately, what it means to abandon everything for Jesus, we need to see and come to realize what Jesus is actually doing when he calls disciples. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and I have on the slide, the next slide, uh, a picture of the Sea of Galilee, if 
I've never been there, but it's just helpful to get a picture of what Jesus is actually doing. Here he is walking along this lake, which is not... Uh, two, besides Seagal, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I just want us to be encouraged by the Spirit's that you have called us to be your disciples, your followers. To be a part of the true story of the world, to be a part of what God the Father is setting in motion through Jesus and now through his people, through the church, for the sake of making, as we have said this morning, all things new. So meet us, encourage us, teach us, encourage, or exhort us, to examine the beauty of Jesus and our commitment to him. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So to understand what Jesus is doing, I think we need to come back and and ask what is the bigger picture of what Jesus is actually doing in his life and his ministry. And if you've been at Redemption Church for uh, more than, as I jokingly say, six minutes, you know that we believe in the story of God as the controlling narrative of which everything must be a part. And so when we come to see the controlling narrative of the story of God, we don't understand Jesus coming just to die so he can pay for our sins, so we can pray a prayer, so we can go to heaven. That is not what God's story actually teaches us. In fact, what we come to see is as we examine that narrative, we come to see that story, we, under, we come to unpack a bigger picture, a fuller picture, I think a more beautiful picture of what Jesus actually came to do. And we have here at Redemption six symbols that we use to depict the story of God. And I think these six symbols just help us, if you're a visual learner, to be able to tell the story of God in six symbols and six sentences of what God is doing in and for the world. And so we believe that in the very beginning, God created the world to be his dwelling place. He wanted to come and dwell with his people. And so he made everything, put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he told them... To rule, subdue, and fill. What that means is just get the earth ready for my arrival. Build my kingdom. And so with that instruction, with that mandate, Adam and Eve begin their journey of making the world God's home, preparing God's kingdom for his arrival. And four minutes later, they jack the whole plan up. With their rebellion, with their fists at God saying, we will not submit to what you want. We're going to determine what we want. And in that simple, willful act of rebellion, that sent the entire world and God's world that he made into a tailspin so that now everything in this world is under a curse. We are all under the power of sin. And God, because he's holy, cannot dwell with sin. And so God cannot come and be with his people. 
And so in order to remedy what had happened in the Garden of Eden, God, being under no compulsion, was determined in his love and his wisdom to form a nation. And 75% of your Bible is this story of this nation, Israel. God forms a people because it's out of this people God's missional plan is going to come to be. God is going to make a world so that he can dwell with his people through this nation, Israel. Through which one Israelite comes, because all the other Israelites and all the Israelites of the time could not accomplish the purposes that God had for them. They could not be the vehicle by which God could come to the world. So one Israelite, Jesus, enters into the scene and he fulfills all the promises, all the fulfillments, all the things that God wanted for Israel. Jesus is fulfilling. And as we will see, he is now gathering people to himself whom he is using to bring about God's new world until he returns. And, and so we use this, this symbol, these story symbols, to remind us that this is what God is doing in the world. And why do I do all that? Because when we talk about Jesus choosing the 12 disciples, we need to actually ask, why does he choose 12 disciples in light of this grand nerve, in light of this whole big missional story of God's mission in the worlds? And first of all, I want to say this, that Jesus, in choosing 12 disciples, is reconstituting Israel around himself so that they may be able to take up their role in God's missional stories, that they will be empowered to be the light of the kingdom to the world. What do I mean by that? Let's just take a step back. That's a lot of big words, okay? Why does Jesus choose 12 disciples? 13 was too many and an unlucky number? To represent the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? I think if we're familiar with the Old Testament story, 12 is very significant. And what do the 12 tribes represent in the Old Testament? The entire nation, correct? These 12 tribes make up the entire nation of Israel. And this nation was given a purpose, a mission, a thing to execute in God's plan, and they were unable to do that. In the Old Testament, these 12 tribes, what was like the center of their life? The tabernacle, absolutely. And one other thing would be the center of their life. The law, right? The center of the life of Israel was the law of God. They organized their life around that law. When they had problems with how to relate to each other, there were these laws by which they would govern themselves. And they knew how to relate to God, how to relate to others, how to relate to themselves. And everything in Israel regarded was centered around this law. Jesus is now coming on the scene and he's gathering 12 men as a picture that Jesus is doing something new. That he is now reorganizing and remaking the nation of Israel. So that Israel can now fulfill what God always wanted them to be. And so now the nation of Israel is now being not centered around the law, but around who? Jesus. Which is why in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I am fulfilling all of the law. The law is no longer what governs and centers God's people. It is actually Jesus. 
And Jesus comes on the scene and brings 12 disciples around him to reorganize the new and true Israel. So this is a dumb illustration, but this is just what I thought of this week as I was trying to say this. is like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year centered their life around a quarterback named Jameis Winston. Right? And if you're familiar with football in the NFL, that's what happened. And they, they, they did a lot of good, but they didn't even make the playoffs. This year, they centered their whole life around a 43-year-old who gave life, who gave direction, and guess what happened? <laughs> Come on, you, you have to admit, he's really good. You can hate him, but he's really good. But you see, this is, in, uh, in, this is where this is, gets even more sillier, that Tom Brady is actually a Jesus figure. <laughs> okay, you, I've lost, all of you are now leaving Redemption Church. <laughs> but my point in all of that is just simply this, is that Jesus is now taking the place of the law and gathering a new and truer Israel of these 12 disciples, he's reconstituting the nation of Israel so that now through Jesus, because Paul will tell us the law could not bring life, the law could not give what it was supposed to give, the only thing the law could do was condemn, it couldn't bring justification, it couldn't bring forgiveness, and yet that is what the law, is what Israel centered around. Now that Jesus comes... He's doing something new. And Matthew wants everyone to know this. That Jesus is restoring and bringing about a new realized Israel through himself. He's reorganizing the life of Israel around himself. Which is why we will see later in the book of Matthew why the Pharisees hate him so much. His love... And Jesus' life now fills his disciples through the empowering presence of the Spirit so that we can take up our role in God's story. And so what we have shown you, to ad nauseum probably, is that in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, Jesus continually takes up the identity and the role of Israel, right? Have you heard Nate and I say that like ten times? Here's why. Because God has to restore Israel first... Before the blessing of the nation, the blessing of the gospel can go to the nations. That's what the story says. The story says that Israel must be restored, and when they are restored, then the blessing of Abraham will go to the entire world. And we say it this way, that what God is going to do for Israel in Jesus will be done for the whole world. And now here is a picture that Jesus is coming on the scene to restore Israel, to bring Israel back to their true purpose for why God actually established them. So first of all, what we see in Jesus calling disciples is not just a group of men who can carry on his mission afterwards, but a declaration that the new Israel, the realized Israel, the, the reconstituted Israel is now being centered and formed around Jesus. Number two, not only do we see the reconstitution, the reorganizing of the real Israel, but number two, we see Jesus chose his disciples to follow him into his missionary purposes for Israel and the world. Jesus chose these men. First of all, let's get who are these men. In this passage, we're introduced to four, probably the four most famous uh, disciple. We have Peter and uh, James, Peter and, oh my gosh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. 
Okay? And these are the four disciples that Jesus calls. And in this passage, we see Jesus beginning to reorganize Israel around these four men. And this is not the first time that Jesus met these men. He wasn't walking around the Sea of Galilee and like, ooh, you look like a neat guy. You come here. Okay, if you read John chapter 1, uh, when G- John the Baptist was baptizing, these disciples were present at Jesus' baptism. And so here Jesus is familiar with who these men are, as the other uh, gospel, tell, uh, gospel narrators will tell us. Matthew doesn't wish to include it, we're not sure why, but just know that this is not something brand new. Also, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were probably all partners in a fishing business. Other gospel writers like Luke tell us that they were actually together, they were working together, they probably had some sort of partnership together so that when Jesus goes and finds Peter, he finds Peter's brother, then they find their fishing partners, James I'm going to just, you know what I'm talking about, okay? The four guys, all right? I'm getting all their names messed up. So these four individuals are probably not only brothers and related, but they're also friends and working together in fishing uh, and being fishermen. And just interestingly, when it says they're mending the nets, they're like just getting the seaweed off, fixing all the tears in the net, just getting it ready for the next throw into the lake. But as they're doing that, Jesus comes along and says, I choose you. And this statement is actually very revolutionary because all other rabbi-disciple relationships in the first century centered on the followers choosing the rabbi. So it would have, it, the normal custom would have been this. Peter would have walked up to Jesus and said, can I follow you? Andrew should have walked up to Jesus and said, can I follow you? But here we have something that is unheard of in the first century, is that the rabbi, the teacher, the master, is calling disciples to follow them. Jesus is clearly saying, I want you. I am calling you. And know this, that Jesus just didn't choose them to be saved and go to heaven. He says, I am choosing you, as we'll see in just a minute, to be fishers of men. Jesus has chosen you. NF, in his latest single this past week, if you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to listen to it, and if you don't like rap music, that is okay. But NF is a a hip-hop artist, In his new single, he has a line in his song, Clouds, called, I don't know why God chose me. And I think to some degree, that is a a real question. Don't some of us in our utter worthlessness look at God and say, why did you choose me? And I think that's a good place to actually be. Because we're not worthy of his love. We're not worthy of his grace. We don't deserve forgiveness. And so there's a very real sense in which we can look at God and say, I don't know why you chose me. But I also think there's another side to that coin where we could just say, why did God choose me? And why did God choose James, Peter, John, and Andrew? 
He says, come and follow me and I will make you what, church? What is Jesus doing when he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men? Was he just being punny? Using a clever pun to make a point? Hey, you're fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And hey, you're a plumber. I'm going to teach you how to draw people through pipes. Like, is that what he's doing? Like, just randomly, like, looking at their occupation and saying, oh, I'm going to be tricky and funny and we get a little laugh out of it? I want to say absolutely not. There's been much made of the relationship between fishing and evangelism. I can give you lots of books on my shelves that talk about how to be a good evangelist and let's be a good fisherman. Prepare the bait, blah, 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 blah. And I don't want to, I guess I just did that wrong. Um, I don't want to necessarily say all that is wrong. But I don't think Jesus was like saying, oh, you know what, you guys are fishermen. You guys know strategy and you are patient and you, you know how to catch fish. I mean, if you look at Peter, he's not patient. I don't, I don't know how he can even be a good fisherman, right? Like, why is Jesus using this understanding of fishermen? Well, I think Jesus is doing what he's been doing the entire chapter, taking up the role of Israel and fulfilling Old Testament promises of what God is going to do for Israel, he is now doing through Jesus. And as we go back to that, you don't have to, but as we go back in our minds to the story of God's symbols, and we see that arrow moving forward, the story of Israel, here's what we know about the story of Israel from the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah chapter 16 says this, However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he has banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. Okay, what is Jeremiah saying? Jeremiah is saying there's this first Exodus event where God rescued Israel out of Egypt, and it was the most climactic, it was the most celebrated activity of God for his people. But what Jeremiah is saying is God is going to do another event like that, but it's going to be so much greater that you're going to forget all about the first event. The second event, the second exodus, is going to be so much greater, so much more celebrated, that you're not even going to remember the first one. Does that make sense? God is saying, one day I'm going to bring all the peoples back to their land. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them out of exile back to me. I'm going to restore them to me, to themselves, to each other. You, you got that? Oh, and it says from the land of the north, which, by the way, just so you know, like, if you were to come through Israel from the, I should have had a map, but if you have, like, Israel down here in, like, this Mediterranean Sea right here, if you go do, uh, I'm trying to do this backwards for you guys, um, I shouldn't be doing it, but if you just go due east of Israel, it's just this big desert, so when people came from Israel, it was always from the north down. So to bring everyone back from Babylon, from Assyria, from all the nations of the world, they'd have to come over to the top of Israel and down. That's why it says from the land of the north. And God says, one day, I'm going to bring all of the people back to me. Okay, guess what the next verse says. You ready? This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use fishermen. 
I'm going to use fishermen to be the people, to be the vehicle by which all the people come back to be with me. So, I think Jesus knew the Old Testament. I think he knew that he was bringing about a second exodus, a restoration of the people of God to himself, around himself as the new center of this new people. And who is he using to bring all the nations back to God? So do you really think Jesus was like, hey, you guys are fishermen, I'll make you fishers of men? Or do you think he understood the Old Testament and that fishermen were going to be the primary people by which the nations would come to know God? See, the Old Testament tells us that in the future, the renewed people will be defined and determined by the, not the exodus from Egypt, but from a new exodus that Jesus is going to bring all the exiles out of and back to Himself. Church, this is why Jesus chose you. He is using you to be a vehicle, to be a demonstration to the nations, to the world, to your neighbors, to Chesapeake, to your workplaces... That there is a new exile going on. They can actually come back, not a new exile, a new exodus, a new exodus back to God. This is why God chose you. So I think it's fair to ask the question, why did God choose me? I am utterly worthless. I don't deserve this. But I think it's also good to come back and say, why did he choose the disciples? To be the vehicle by which the fishermen would go and hunt and bring the nations back to God. So, number one, Jesus is reorganizing Israel around himself. Number two, Jesus is calling fishermen to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that everyone is going to come back to him through the fishermen. But then number three, as we close, following Jesus is an all-out abandonment of the old life to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. When you look in Matthew chapter 4, there's a lot made of it, and I think we can make a lot of it. When, when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, they were casting a net into the lake, and he says, come follow me. And what do they do? Do they, they say, wait, let me pull up the nets and see if I got any fish? No, they leave the nets in the water, don't they? Now, more than likely, they had servants and people who worked for them, so they just didn't leave their boat and their nets and never saw them again. Or when you go to the next set of brothers with James and John, they were in a boat and their father Zebedee and preparing their nets. They were getting ready to go back out and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And there's like this immediate like abandonment. When they saw Jesus and Jesus said, follow me, they just jumped out of the boat and said, let's go. And much is made of them immediately leaving their nets and their whole lives behind to follow Jesus. And in one sense, please hear me, church, I want us to wholeheartedly abandon everything for Jesus. Okay? But let's look at a couple things before we get there. First, let's look at this. This immediate abandonment to stop fishing and following Jesus does not necessarily mean that discipleship will always look like this, as an all-out abandonment of everything we own and do for the sake of the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? You're like, you're a pastor, and you just said this doesn't have to be like this every time? Yes, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they immediately followed Jesus. But you know what else they did? 
They went back fishing, didn't they? At the end of the Gospels in John, what did they do? They went back fishing. Like, what I'm saying is, like, there should be, and we want to have this all-out abandonment for Jesus. But you know what? Life isn't always like that. That is not excusing it. But there are seasons in your life where there are just hard times. There are struggles. There's realities. There's times that we go back fishing. But when we go back fishing, guess what ends up happening? Jesus shows up again. And we jump out of the boat and go for him again. Every day you're jumping out of the boat. This isn't a one-time call that when you become a Christian, I'm abandoning Jesus, abandoning everything for Jesus. No, this is a continual pursuit that we every morning need to jump out of our boats and follow Jesus. You know, like, we, please understand me, this is not an excuse, but are there some days you just stay in the boat? There are some days you just stay in the boat. And when you're in the boat, what you need to do is say, Jesus, I need you to show up. I need you to come and call me out of the boat so that I jump out of the boat. Like it's, there's this reality that sometimes we just are like, there should be this all-out abandonment, and if you're not going, you should feel like a bad Christian. And I'm like, well, yeah, but let's just be real. And I want to be honest with you. In my own life, you know how I get out of the boat most times? Not through some supernatural event where I see Jesus or hear Jesus. But I get called out of the boat through you, through you, through you, through God's people. Calling me out of the boat regularly happens through God's people. God has lots of different means, lots of different ways to call us out of the boat. And maybe for you, God calls you out of the boat through dreams. Maybe he calls you out of the boat through, you know, reading your Bible. Maybe there's so many different ways. But the point is, is that when you're stuck in the boat, figure out how to get out of the boat. Work to get out of the boat. Don't just wake up one day like, well, not today, maybe tomorrow. No, work to get out of the boats. Secondly, I think we need to actually stop and think about what kingdom work actually is. And I, I say this a lot, um, and I haven't seen it in a while, uh, so I'm just going, I should have watched it this week, but I think a lot of you know about this um, new show about Jesus called The Chosen. If you haven't, just Google The Chosen Jesus. It is actually the first Christian film thing I can actually watch and endorse, okay? It's amazing. Um, and I think one of the reasons is the people who wrote it actually did a lot of research and had a lot more, I think, not like just cultural expectations of who Jesus is, but who Jesus actually was. And contrary to popular belief, in what I think is popular belief, what I was taught and understood my whole life, the, the disciples, these four men, probably did not quit their occupations altogether. Like, we often think they left their nets and never went back fishing, right? They just followed Jesus 24 hours a day where Jesus slept, they slept. If you watch The Chosen, I think they do a good job of, like, 
they go to their house and they go follow Jesus. Then they're at their boats and they're back at the house and they go follow Jesus. And they're gone with Jesus for a few days and they come back. This is probably the lifestyle that they had. Because in order to, have, to go back into the boats at the end of the Gospel of John, they actually still had to have what? Boats. So an all-out abandonment to follow Jesus doesn't mean right now you should quit your job and take your family in a camper and just start preaching the gospel. If that's what Jesus is calling you to do, do it. But I think a more holistic understanding of what it means in all-out abandonment of Jesus is actually to abandon everything for Jesus in the everyday, ordinary stuff of life where there will be days, there will be seasons, where there will be times where Jesus is saying, now leave here and come with me for three days. Come with me over here into a new area. Come with me to Galilee. Go back home. Come with me down to Jerusalem. Go back home. So what is discipleship? It is a lifelong commitment to pursue Jesus, to continually seek to get out of the boat, to stay, on the, stay out of the boat. This is a daily task, a daily work to be the fishers of men. And as we close, I just have this question for you. What is the next step Jesus is calling you to take for the sake of his kingdom? What's the next thing Jesus is asking you to jump out of the boat for? Because this is the true story of the world. This is where God's people, when they fulfill their role of following Jesus, using their unique gifts and their personalities and the church coming together to actually be the fishers of men, to be the means by which we're drawing people from our neighborhoods and from uh, uh, our jobs and from our workplaces to, to come to be and to know Jesus. And Jesus has left a spirit and dwelt people who have the life of Jesus in them to be his fishermen. So Jesus, thank you that you reorganized Israel around yourself and now that you have restored Israel, you brought Israel to be the light to the nations by which today we actually participate in. That what you did for Israel, you're doing for us. That in giving Israel a new center of life, you have given us a new center of life, Jesus. In giving Israel your spirit, you've given, you've given your spirit to us. And so, Jesus, I just pray that you will help us to examine our discipleship and help us today to get out of the boat, to see your beauty, to see your excellence, to see the joy, the peace, the hope that you give us compel us to jump out of the boat, to keep following you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.